Hi, and welcome to the Hand in Hand Show, where caregivers and survivors have honest discussions about stroke. We are a part of Stroke Focus Podcasts. This is Cam, your host. If you are a survivor, a caregiver, a researcher, a support group leader, or a local business helping the stroke and brain injury community, Stroke Focus is offering a number of exciting programs. Get details at the end of this podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Cam, and welcome to the Hand in Hand Show, a part of Stroke Focus. Today, my guest is Amy Edmonds, founder of Young Stroke. Stroke changed Amy Edmonds' life. She had a stroke in 2002. And she has since founded Young Stroke Incorporated as an outcome of her graduate studies in 2005 to benefit other survivors and their caregivers. An NIH-funded researcher, Amy evangelizes the unmet needs of young adult stroke survivors on such global platforms as the World Stroke Congress and the International Stroke Conference. And she serves as the first American stroke survivor elected by international peers to the board of directors of the World Stroke Organization. And then last year, she launched Young Stroke Editorials as a quarterly publication to ignite discourse about stroke support organizations helping young adults who experience stroke. So welcome, Amy. Thank you, Cam. It's a pleasure to be with you. Can you tell everyone a little bit about what happened to you first in 2002? Certainly. I was having breakfast with my mom, and we were chatting away and reading the newspaper, and that's when I became a parrot. I started repeating myself over and over. And the third time that I asked my mom the same question, she knew something wasn't quite right with me. And so she dialed 911. They came over. And in the interim, while we were waiting for EMS to arrive, I uh, became totally blind. And my speech continued to be confused. But by the time EMS arrived, my eyesight had returned. and I appeared to be quite normal. And so the EMS team actually denied me transport to the hospital. And so my mother felt that something wasn't quite right about me. And so she actually got me to the hospital that day. And like many young survivors who arrived, in a private car, you uh, have to wait. And so I was able to walk into the hospital. I completed uh, the paperwork. I wrote the check for the copay, and I was told to have a seat. And I waited over three hours in ER that day. And so I missed the window for TPA. And, you know, by God's grace, my deficits did not manifest as anything physical, but I do have uh, some long-term memory loss. Okay. How old were you when you had your stroke? I was 45 when I had my stroke. So, yes, you're, you're one of the young people. <laughs> uh, it's interesting that you said when you walked in that you still had to wait three hours. Yes. Um, I 
went to the emergency room and had to wait a couple of hours. And then uh, they released me because I passed all the tests. I was fine. Yeah. A half an hour, I was back. Um, And that time I had to wait eight hours. So I told them, you know, that is a problem, I think, when you're younger because they to write it off. Yes, yes. And and so, you know, earlier I was, you know, explaining, you know, to Daniel that so often you underestimate the need for education. You know, I initially thought that the education needed to occur only with the public, that we needed to make the public more aware. But we actually find that we're also having to help educate healthcare professionals, you know, that our population exists. Yes, absolutely, because more and more stroke is becoming a problem in younger people. Yes. And, and when I say younger, we're, we're noticing, I just read like 18 to, to 30 yes. are having more strokes. Yes. Uh, you know, we've always known, well, not everyone, but we've always known that children have strokes. But this middle group of 18 to 50 exactly. is kind of hard because they think, hey, you know, they can't have a stroke, they're too young. I had a nurse tell me, you can't have had a stroke, you're too young. <laughs> yes. Like, uh, well, I did. It happened. Yes. Hello? Yes. <laughs> That's why yes. the diagnosis, yes. it's like, really? I, I <laughs> understand that. And, you know, for me, I have to say, I've worked in that medical field for 34 years or so, I mean, as a medical secretary and stuff, so I know stuff, but, you know, I I knew little ones could have strokes, and and old people, old, old people had strokes, (laughs) and and I knew there were some in between, but I didn't realize the impact that really it's it's more than what we, we know, and it is more common. Yes. So, that all being said, how did you come up with the idea of young stroke? Well, you know, immediately after my stroke experience, I had lots of questions. And people who know me would not be surprised that I had lots of questions. <laughs> and I wore a few people down, you know. And um, it was really interesting because uh, there were concerns about my immediately returning to work and my curiosity really uh, caused me to focus on perhaps this was a really good time to go to grad school because I'd never been still enough to go to grad school. So I enrolled and, you know, in that first semester, you know, part of the challenge is, so, you know, what is it that you want to concentrate in in graduate school? Well, I was pretty much distracted by the fact that I had been given a stroke diagnosis. And so um, I remember in research methods, the only thing I wanted to look up was why are young adults having strokes? And mm-hmm. my curiosity around that position led me to uh, research that was being done in the United Kingdom. And actually, I thought it was quite interesting that in that same year of my stroke, 2002, there was a publication out of the UK titled The Unmet Needs of Young Stroke Survivors. And so that became my mantra. And so um, I really... Um, was drawn to um, all of the work that was uh, being done in the United Kingdom, and that really helped 
to open my eyes to how this issue was being addressed so much more aggressively in the international community than what I saw here in the U.S. And so I was not deterred by my professors who kept suggesting, you know, alternate uh, topics for my, you know, concentration. And I, I just kept coming back to stroke and young adults. And, and so at the end of my, my thesis, I speculated that, you know, when I ruled the world, I would create an organization, an advocacy organization for young adults because we really, in my opinion, needed to have our own voice to uniquely articulate our needs as being different than geriatric patients. And and because I'm an overachiever, along with my graduate thesis, I submitted an application for a 501c3. And, and of course, my advisor was telling me that, oh, you need to have an attorney to do that. You need to have a CPA in order, you know, to, to do that correctly. And I just filled the thing out, put it in the mailbox in January. And then by, it was fabulous. By uh, the week of my commencement, I had received my IRS determination letter. That was the best graduation present ever. And so uh, that's how Young Stroke came to be born. While you were talking about everything, you said your professors were not on board with your thesis, I guess? Yes, yes, because it was so unconventional. And, and again, there were very few research references based on the American experience. You know, it, you know, and particularly at that time. And so now within the last 10 years, there has been some homegrown research. And, and I'm very fortunate, you know, to have helped, you know, to contribute towards, you know, mm-hmm. some of that. And so it's gotten better. So if you had done a paper on water moccasins, that would have been okay. <laughs> <laughs> or even, or even. <laughs> yes, or, or even just to have done a paper on stroke as it impacts elderly patients would have been more status quo than the direction, you know, that I was pursuing. Well, I hope they gave you high marks on that <laughs> turn it in or when you presented it. Where would we be in the world if we all stayed in the comfort zone of everybody else? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So tell me, because I am not familiar with cryptogenetic stroke, and probably a lot of our audience might not be either. Okay. Well, to say that someone has a cryptogenic stroke is a fancy way of saying, we don't know why in the world that person had a stroke. It's it's basically (laughs) another way of saying stroke of unknown cause. And yes. And so for me, um, I was not symptomatic of stroke in any way. I had a blood pressure of 110 over 70 on the day of my stroke. I have never had high blood pressure. I do not have a family history of stroke. I'm not diabetic. I've never been obese. I wasn't abusing substances. I 
wasn't even on any medication. And so we really don't know what caused my stroke to happen. It was not an aneurysm. Um, there, it was not a bleed. And, and even as an ischemic stroke, it was very odd because I did not have a single clot. Uh, my CAT scan looked like someone had taken a pepper grinder to my brain and just peppered my entire brain. It oh, was wow. described as a shower of emboli. And so, yes, I, I think that's very much what um, what the neurologist must have said, too, because they took their time getting to my room. And when they did come, uh, they brought 14 residents with them because they were all coming to see um, you know, what was left to correspond with the CAT scan. And they were really surprised to see me sitting on the side of the bed surfing the TV. So do you think the cryptogenetic stroke is more common among young people? Well, more than 30% of the strokes in young people are cryptogenic. We do not know. There is such a need for more research uh, to be done because certainly there is a reason we just haven't discovered it yet. So you started the Young Stroke Conference. Well, you know, that was, you know, back to education. Isn't it interesting how often we have scientific conferences that affect the population of people, but we do not bring that population into the conference? Right. And so... Uh, so I was very determined to host a scientific conference to address our topic and to help raise awareness because, you know, it's only through scientific conferences that you can really grab the attention of the medical and the research community. And so I was very fortunate to be able to garner the support Mayo Clinic and some other, you know, significant partners to pull this together. And I didn't even realize Back in 2014, when I got started, that we were doing a first-time event. I didn't find that out until um, after the event was over, actually. And and so it was significant because we did include the survivor community. We uh, were able to provide scholarships to help uh, caregivers and survivors um, to attend the event, and they were all just exemplary in terms of being able to share their experience with the researchers and the healthcare professionals. And, and it was just truly phenomenal to also experience the bond that was created among, you know, the people that were in the room. And many of them um, continue to be in touch. They have their own little Facebook group and they still, you know, support each other. And, and I think that, you know, for me, that was the highest compliment, you know, that they were able to make that connection together. We actually had One survivor in in particular that comes to mind was a young woman that traveled all the way from Wyoming to Florida by herself. And for her, it was the first time she had ever been in the room with stroke survivors her own age. And she was in Mm -hmm. her, her early 20s. And so, you know, that was a tremendous moment for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. I had a stroke survivor here in Missouri who I think we met on a Facebook page and she was very upset because she was in her mid to late 30s mm-hmm. and thought she was the only one. 
Right. And she was going to North Carolina or something every once in a while to go to a stroke support group. And I'm like, Petey, you're all over. There's drivers right. everywhere. And I'm fortunate that the stroke survivors group that I do run here has a wide range, but we've yes. had everywhere from 29-year-olds to right. 65 or so right. as our regulars. Yes. You know, but but she thought she was all alone. She, exactly. And I'll, I'll yeah, I love telling survivors, you're not that special. You're not the only one. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah. A lot of people do start feeling sorry for themselves because they think they're it. And it yes. is like, get over it. Yeah, you, know? you are not that special. God, you know, this didn't just happen to you. <laughs> right. I mean, it can be any age. It could be any yes. type of demographic. You can be exactly. any ethnic of any ethnic exactly. origin, you know, any yes. religion. Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're all in this. We're all yes. out here. Yes. Stroke doesn't discriminate. I mean, I know, guys, I, I, those of you who are listening, we're really not making fun of it. But, you know, we have to laugh. Yes. Sit there and think about all the the hardship and the, you know, well, my right arm isn't working and, you know, my left leg and, you know, my brain doesn't, you know, <laughs> well, my brain doesn't function either. I work on half a brain most of the time. Yes. But well, mine is this cheese. Yes. I, because of my memory deficit, you know, it's like, you better hope you didn't fall into that hole. <laughs> well, you know, and like I said, I've worked in the medical field for 34 years and I go into work on a Monday and the doctors would say that I worked with, they'd say, well, how was your weekend? And I'd go, um, well, I don't remember anything. So I guess it was okay. You know, I mean, stuff like that. But yeah, I, I get the memory, you know, things do get better. And that's, that's one of the things we want to say, but we also want to say that these things do happen when we're younger. It's unfortunate, but you know, we can, try to blast past that part. So what were your biggest challenges in, in starting the stroke conference? Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, well, many. <laughs> the, the, the biggest, yes. The, the biggest challenge was um, recognizing that there's a tremendous opportunity for, for there to be a greater focus on patient education. There are tremendous resources available for um, continuing medical education. But mm-hmm. when you want to create an event that's more patient-centered, it's much more challenging. And the funding dollars that are actually available are quite minimal in comparison to funds that are available for continuing medical education. And that was a huge frustration. And it really caused me to have to redesign the initial conference focus, which I wanted to be 100% caregiver survivor community, but we were not able to, to garner, you know, the, the dollars needed to be able, um, because, you know, I gave myself a very ambitious goal of being able to provide scholarships for the survivors and caregivers to attend because, you know, so many in our community um, are really strapped for cash. And that's right. especially true for younger people who 
are not qualifying for any federal subsidies, you know, when it comes to, you know, their therapy sessions or even, you know, for some of their prescription medications. And so we had to pull back a little bit and be much more inclusive of the continuing medical education just to enable us, you know, to meet some of our financial objectives. And I, you know, it, it still turned out to be, you know, pretty phenomenal. And we've been able to leverage some really good things, you know, as a consequence of, of that. And, you know, and we certainly were able to recruit doctors that were very much focused on stroke in young adults. And I've been able to maintain very viable relationships with them as an outcome. And so, you know, sometimes it's, it's a good thing to, to have an idea. And it's also a good thing to go with the flow. You you make the best of the opportunity, you know, that you have and, and you just um, work with it to make it be a win-win. And it, and it certainly has. And, and we were able to replicate that first conference into um, a second one. But I told everyone from the start, I, you know, had no long-term ambitions to be an event planner long-term. And so, <laughs> you know, yeah. those... Those two conferences served a purpose and they enabled us, you know, to really leverage this whole concept of stroke in young adults really to the forefront. And it, it got us on some really great stages and, and that's all been good. And we have been working a little more quietly over the last um, 18 months or so and, and really making some, some things happen. And I, we're not, quite as visible over this last year, but that doesn't mean that the work isn't, you know, still going on, you know, and um, I'd like to just highlight one of one of the points that I have been most proud of is something that has happened just over the last few months, and that was being able to impact the training module of emergency dispatchers. You know, it's the emergency dispatcher, the person that answers the phone when someone dials 911. That really is such a a critical position in the continuum of stroke care. Because when that person dials 911 and that dispatcher answers the call, generally It's somewhere around like the third question that they will ask is the age of the person that you're calling about. And contingent upon the age that's provided, that really sets in motion the whole chain of events as to how EMS is going to respond to that patient. Well, imagine having the radio dispatcher to be totally oblivious to the fact that people are having stroke at age 30. Mm-hmm. You see? So well, so probably what they do is you say age 30, and they flip to page 95 because there's there no way go. that young person could have a stroke. There you oh. go. There you go. And yeah. so exactly, exactly. And so this year – we were able to partner with the largest provider of online training for emergency dispatchers to revise that training module. Mm -hmm. And it just warms my heart to think about 
how great of a difference that's going to make for so many people going forward who won't have to relive my experience and your experience of being diagnosed, you see? Absolutely. The minute they knew what your symptoms had been, they should also have known that they can wax and wane over a period of time. I mean, I know my mother's older. She's in her 80s. But hers ended up being a TIA first, and then a week later she had the stroke. Well, when she had the TIA, originally she had problems, as you said, and and, but then – they kind of went away, and then we'd think, I think she's lisping or something again, you know, right. and, and it would just go in and out. So if you got a dispatcher and you told them the first symptoms but said, but she seems fine now, but I'm a little concerned, and they, they might say, oh, yeah, stroke, I'm going to, you know, put that in here. But she was 80. If they right. were her, exactly. they think they were drunk or on drugs or, you know, right. something right. totally different. And yeah. so it gets treated at first differently by the paramedics. That's right. Uh, That's right. And hopefully the paramedics then are more educated most of the time um, that they would catch that. And and I think it's becoming we're becoming more vocal as young stroke survivors that people are listening more yeah. um, than they had been. Yes. But that is so cool. I really yeah. like the fact. That that happened, that that came about. So tell us about your newest, other newest thing within the last year, Young Stroke Editorials. Well, you know, there's such, there's such a need for communication among uh, stroke support organizations, you know. Organizations are no different than our survivors. Sometimes we start to feel really special. We start to feel as if we're the only ones that are unfunded. We're the only ones that's not reaching our target population. We're the only one that has a a group of people, you know, that's less than 50 or it's less than 100. You know, we, we imagine that everyone is doing so much better than we are. And... And we also sometimes we get so self-centered that we fail to recognize that we could just be such a tremendous source of inspiration and such a source of help to other people, you know, who are just, you know, starting on this journey. And so Young Stroke Editorial is a way for um, stroke support organizations to learn about some of the challenges and the successes of other organizations, and it's also a window into our survivor and caregiver community for those researchers and for those healthcare professionals that are really struggling very hard every day, you know, to try to enhance our quality of life. And, you know, and it's it's a vehicle for them to, you know, to tap in and to the information that we provide as a resource. I need that. As a facilitator of a group, it's difficult to find resources. I mean, any type of resources. You know, I'm sure that you have to hunt and hunt to find something. And and then for me, I don't have always the attention span to do that. But I don't know of any resources other than, you know, to tell somebody else you need to 
help me with this, find this for me, or, you know, whatever. This is such a good thing. Yes, well, thank you. So in doing this, where do you get your information? Um, Is it from other physicians? Is it from other stroke survivors? Is it um, a combination of research and people and <laughs> well, it, it, it's a combination of all of the tremendous experiences that that I've had um, since my stroke. One of the points of my introduction was that I'm currently the only American survivor to serve the board of directors of the World Stroke Organization, and that's really been a very empowering position for me because that means that typically three or four times a year I'm at a table with people representing up to 80 different countries or regions of the world that are all talking about stroke care related issues. And so that becomes... And they are not stroke survivors. And they are not stroke survivors. For the most part, they are the um, healthcare professionals. They are overwhelmingly uh, physicians. There are a few nurses at the table, but for the large part, they are administrators. I have two other partners at the table that are actually survivors. And so we both feel the tremendous responsibility to represent the voice of survivors during those discussions and saying, you know, what, you know, trying to make sure that, you know, consideration is given, you know, from our uh, unique perspective. And also because of the seat at that table, I do have an opportunity to to have access to other support organizations. And that has been, you know, just tremendous because it, it gives me perspective. You know, sometimes in America, uh, the assumption is made that all survivors in America, you know, we have access to, you know, state-of-the-art care. But in fact, you know, there are many people in our country that have tremendous needs. And I, I think that, you know, it's it's very easy to forget that the majority of the population in America is in a rural community. And rural communities are very hard-pressed to provide, you know, support services for stroke survivors of any age. We don't have a lot of community resources to help people reintegrate back into the community. And then affords me a tremendous perspective to also hear people from other countries who can't even have the conversation about community resources because they would just like to have a simple FAST brochure to help people learn the signs and symptoms, you know, of stroke that, you know, it, it cannot help. You, you can't help but have empathy for communities that we hear where people are being banished from their communities because people feel that the stroke experience has been some type of spiritual demon that has entered this person and that they need to be put away for some from some spiritual reason, you see, as opposed to recognizing that stroke really is a physiological condition. And and so there's such a disparity 
when it comes to stroke care around the world. And, and I'm hopeful that the reclassification of stroke from being a cardiovascular to a neurological disease, um, that just happened last year, last March. And so I'm so hopeful that this will help to elevate stroke care on a global stage as being accepted as a real priority and, and not as the stepchild that it has been so long when it was identified as cardiovascular, you know, for whatever reason, and especially in our country, when we identify, when we associate stroke with cardiovascular, stroke always loses because the focus is first on heart. And so by this new separation, um, that will have a tremendous benefit for the survivor community because that's going to help drive research dollars for more therapies, neurological therapies. And um, this has been a conversation that's been going on for over 60 years. And so. Absolutely. So 20 years ago, you were just at home. And nothing was really done. You had your stroke, oh, well, go home. Now, more and more, at least, people are getting therapies or support of some sort, Um, but not necessarily. Again, like you said, in rural areas, it's more difficult, but there are things happening like telemedicine. Right. um, You know, they're doing teletherapies, and I've talked to people who do um, physical therapy it's not covered by insurance, but they offer it now. Right. And it can be a little expensive, but it could be cheaper than going to the therapy services. There's just all sorts of things that are now happening and not necessarily that it's not impacting uh, stroke survivors. But again, a lot still are being sent home with, yeah, you had a stroke, but you're okay. Just take it easy for a few days and go back to work. Or, you know, go what you were doing. And it's like they get home and it's like overwhelming. The brain function isn't quite doing it. Uh, You know, they notice that they can't lift things and they don't know who to call. They don't know what to do. And as far as like stroke support groups, I have one here in St. Louis and then I did have one in a more rural area. But Mm -hmm. we had to drop it because nobody was showing up. It was once every Two or three months, somebody would show up, and it was an hour drive for me. I I understand. Yeah, so it had to stop. We've been trying to think of other things to do since then, but we were trying to support that community. Right. Unfortunately, it just wasn't working, whether it was the time, the day, or or people didn't feel like it would help them. And because even in the this area here, it's it's a big community, but I think a lot of people get home and they're like embarrassed to come or they can't get a family member to bring them because the family member doesn't think whatever. So there's all sorts of reasons people can't get where they need to be. But a big is they get discharged with really no instruction. And another important point is that a stroke is a very individualized experience. It's not as if there is a homogenous group of people that all have the same need beyond the emotional support. 
And so that makes it really difficult to try to target specific services to provide. And, and I, I certainly too can, you know, understand some survivors who feel that the support group isn't giving them what they need, but we have to help our community to understand beyond yourself. Sometimes it's not just about what you get. It's also what you can give. And even, and once your question, once your issue has been resolved, you are still a part of that community and that community needs you to still be a part. We still need you to come and be present and you never know what you might learn or take away from another person, even though your immediate need has been met. Been met. You don't even know what you don't know, you see? Right. And so it's always good. It's always good to be, you right. know, to be a part. And I, I have, I have been a part of so many groups and I have been so disappointed sometimes by people who do come only for that short fix. And once they think that their issue is taken care of, they don't want to come back. And then two meetings later, somebody has found a resource or we have something that would have benefited that person, but they never came back. You see? And 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 so we we can't connect with them. So as a facilitator myself, I learn something. And even if I don't learn anything at that particular meeting, I feel like we spread the word to other oh, people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Whether I bring questions or if people bring their problems or they said, you know, hey, I figured out how to cook one handed or, you know, right. I, yes. 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 You, you never know. And it is, it, it is its own community. Yeah. Uh, and, but you're right. I mean, sometimes people give it up after they get answers. Right. Um, and they don't stop to, bond with people and and even the caregivers or the spouse or you know whoever benefits also by learning techniques from others that are caregivers or even from the survivors themselves knowing that their survivor isn't mm-hmm. crazy or right. you know <laughs> survivors kind seriously um, yes. so other survivors yes. are going through this and they get more of a feel and and maybe more empathy because they realize the forgetfulness or the um, not being able to do whatever or the the fatigue or you know so they do learn something too and it would be wonderful if we could get that out to people and that they would start coming more because you know uh, one person out of what is it one thousand that are affected by stroke. Right. Only one out of that group receives some kind of support after discharge. And whether that discharge um, support is, um, you know, a a stroke support group or therapies or whatever, that's huge. That's a huge number that don't get anything. That's right. Uh, So I I just, I I always shake my head because it's just mind-boggling. I mean, it took me a few months to go to a stroke support group. but mine was, you know, getting a ride and right. uh, and and the the fear of what happens when I go to a stroke support. Group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
crying. But then after I got over that and went, I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm not alone. This is a good thing. This is a good thing, yes. And then I'm running. So I don't know how that happened. So in the next five years, what are you (laughs) wanting to do? What is your next focus? My next focus is not unlike my past focus. I will always focus on education, education among our survivor community, education to the community at large, and education with um, healthcare professionals. The uh, mission of Young Stroke is to benefit young adults and their caregivers through research and education. And so I am always supportive of young researchers who come to me wanting to wanting or needing support to conduct surveys to help drive clinical trials, people who are trying to interview um, young uh, stroke survivors to see what their specific needs are. I'm always going to be available to be a resource in that way for people. I'm also very much about empowering any survivor who wants to do anything to help drive awareness about our community. And I, I so want everyone to recognize the power that they have as a single individual. When, when we think about being an advocate, when we think about being able to affect change or to make something great happen, it's not about being with a crowd. A crowd is really limited and how effective it can be because it's so unmanageable. When you have thousands of people, it's like hoarding cats. I mean, how easy is that? Okay. But the one person that you truly can control is yourself. And as an individual, if just imagine how powerful our community would be if individually we all chose to be more visible in our own community. Go to your own city council meeting in your wheelchair, with your walker, with your cane, and introduce yourself to that body as, my name is Jane and I'm a stroke survivor. Wow, if we got people out of the house, and just got them to show up and be present, it would make life so much better for all of us who would love to be talking about policy issues and accommodation issues and why can't we get more handicapped spots and why can't we have more handicapped accessible bathrooms and public places and Why can't we? Why can't we? Why can't we? If we had numbers, as long as people think that, oh, I must not have any stroke survivors in my community. I don't know anybody that that looks like that. I don't know anybody that's having difficulty after a stroke. I don't know any stroke survivors that's wanting to go back to work. They must all just want to collect disability. We know that those things are not true. But if we stay at home, and and don't show ourselves, 
people think we don't exist. And therefore, we don't need any accommodation. We don't need to have anybody advocating for policy. And so we are so powerful. And so um, we all need to embrace that, embrace that. And then collectively, you know, we can all be so much better off. But the short answer is education, <laughs> research. Amy, this has been so much fun, but we're going to have to go now. Yes, well, thank you guys, and I look so forward to following up with you. I know I'm going to be talking to you later. Oh, yeah, we need to talk more. You need to come back on because there's so many things. Accommodation, when you said that, I was like (laughs) all over the place. (laughs) We could talk about even there. Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, there's accommodations at work, there's accommodations yes. out of the public, there's, yes. you know, there's, there's so much there and, and people don't understand even what that is. They, yes. they, I mean, they might, but they yes. don't. So, yes. you know, I, I am high functioning, of course, brain injury, but I don't always think fast on my feet. So, you know, yes. things have happened and I didn't realize at the moment that I should have been more forceful in it asking for the accommodation and I've actually had people laugh when when it was asked that I have accommodation because I couldn't drive at night and then people well it was a courtroom and I was there for someone else and they were like yeah well I wish I could go home at four you know they thought this was funny right and and even the judge kept putting it off and it was like I was panicking because I had an hour and a half drive home and I'm like It's, it's getting, you know, and, and people not only ourselves as survivors or being disabled or handicapped, however you want to put that, there are, you need to know about your accommodations. Amy, thank you so much for being here. One thing I do want to ask as we leave, is there a website that you have or a Facebook page or want to put out there? Sure, all of those things. So you can visit our website at youngstroke.org, and that is young, Y-O-U-N-G, stroke, S-T-R-O-K-E, dot org. And um, we'll be happy to um, hear from you there. And then also you can go to youngstrokeeditorials.com, and that will take you to um, the newsletter that I um, referenced um, earlier as well. Okay, so again, thank you. I, I want you to come back because I think there's so much more we can talk about. But Amy Edmonds, uh, you are phenomenal. Thank you, and you are too. Oh, thanks. Thank you for all that you do, though, because there's so many don't move forward and do something, whether it's for the community or just getting out there and getting their education or a higher even education. Um, yes, kinds of things because it, it does at times get harder. Um, yes. but you did it. So thank, thank you for being thank on the you. show with me. And again, guys, I hope you all enjoy this talk that we just had because I've certainly enjoyed myself. This is an announcement of Stroke Focus. Stroke Focus has opened up its blog section to all its members. It is a professional platform, completely free and very easy to use. It provides instant visibility to know how many views your blog is receiving. At the same time, we are helping members put stories on our podcast. 
you can get a professional quality radio broadcast to share on Facebook, Twitter, or post on your site. For all our members with aphasia, our audio editors will help make your interview smooth. Do not need any professional equipment. No interview will be published before you review and approve it. There is no charge. Join us at https colon backslash backslash www.strokefocus.net or write to us at contact at strokefocus.net. Join the growing list of people sharing stories. What you share will make a difference.